0: We have prepared this morning a panel of Prairie members who participated in one way or another in the civil rights movement during the 1960s. Introducing Mary Mullen, Bob Park and myself who will provide a brief description of our experiences during those times.
1: All right. I'm Mary Mullen. The reason I was chosen to go first is because I was I participated in nineteen sixty and then we're just going to go chronologically. So today what I wanna tell you about is my time at Spelman College. It's a college for black women in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was an exchange student there in the spring of my sophomore year from my college, which was North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. The year was 1960, and it was during that spring semester that black students started doing sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina. I was a small-time preacher's kid uh, from Wazeka, Wisconsin, a town of about 600 in southwestern Wisconsin. In school, I'd been taught absolutely nothing about black history except that the Civil War had settled slavery. At home, my uh, mother specifically taught us that every soul was equal regardless of color or class. You might know this song. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. That's what I was taught. I applied to be an exchange student uh, only because my College roommate Ruth was applying, and she said, well, you should apply too. She was not selected. So in January 1960, I was on a train alone from Chicago to Atlanta, launching into a completely different culture. Most of the black women at Spelman, I found, were upper class and far more sophisticated than I was. And I was in a seat of black learning. Five black institutions of higher learning clustered together there. Spelman for women, Morehouse College for men, Clark College, Morris Brown, and Atlanta University. I had no idea of what would start brewing that semester. On March 9, 1960s, black student leaders from these institutions that I just named published an appeal for human rights. It's also known as a a black manifesto in the Atlanta papers. Uh, One of the signers was Rosalind Pope, she was president of the student government at Spelman. And just this week, I learned the details of how that came about. Back in February of 1960, uh, she, as she sat in a drugstore drinking coffee, Morehouse College students Julian Bond, who you may know of, and Lonnie King came riding in with a newspaper in Greensboro uh, about the first black student sit-in at a Woolworth lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, They wanted to create a student movement in Atlanta, so they stopped to talk to Rosalind and by the end of the day those three decided they would just start one. Uh, Rosalind was the one who actually wrote the appeal and Julian Bond typed it on a typewriter of Professor Howard uh, uh, Zinn in his home, which was on the campus. I actually babysat uh, Howard Zinn's kids and played tennis with him. The manifesto decried the discriminatory uh, conditions in Atlanta and Georgia as a whole. So I had a very, very minor role in the protests. Uh, the Atlanta student leaders made plans to protest the situation at Rich's Department Store in downtown Atlanta. Uh, part of the plan was to pair up a white student and a black student and to figure out or ascertain that riches would not serve blacks at eating facilities or a mixed group. I was asked to participate and we were trained. Here's what we did. Uh, We rode the elevator up to the third floor lunch counter and then we approached the lunch counter. It was that typical sort of soda jerk like appearance with mirrors, signs and milkshake making equipment behind the counter. So together this, uh, Black girl and I came to the counter, and then I kind of choked out something like, uh, We'd like to order here. We use service. Can we sit down? The clerk behind the counter just couldn't believe her eyes. We could see that. Um, she looked back and forth and back and forth. You know, she wasn't used to seeing a black person and a white person asking to be served together. And it dawned on her that that's what she was seeing and that we were asking something that she was not permitted to allow, and probably she didn't want it to happen either. Uh, I remember feeling a little bit shaky, even though we, uh, our training was not to challenge her, but just to ascertain that she wouldn't serve us. So we expected this, and so what, what we did then was turn to uh, the very much fancier dining room. It's one of those that had a velvet rope attended by a doorman. But as we got closer to it, as we walked toward it, that doorman just uh, picked up the velvet rope and drew it across the uh, door uh, and hooked it.
0: On the, the,
1: uh, the other side, He said, the dining room was closed. It was clear that we were being refused because, well, for sure, because there was a black person asking and because both of us were wanting to eat there together. Uh, I felt kind of insulted but in, still, in a way, powerful, because we were just two 19-year-old college girls. See what power we had? Just by asking to sit down together, we were for, forced a closure of a very fine dining room. So we just turned away, went back to the elevator, and went back to campus. Nothing too exciting, but, you know, we ascertained we couldn't be served. And then the only other challenge that I presented in Atlanta was to pound on the door of an express bus in a panic to be let off the, at the Spelman campus, which wasn't a stop. Well, you know, as a small town girl, I had never ridden on a city bus before. And I had gone downtown on the proper bus because I told which one was uh, which one was the one to take and that I would just take it back, but I didn't notice it was express. And if I even noticed it, I wouldn't have known that. So. I'm pounding on the door because they're going past my stop at Spelman College, and I wouldn't have known how to get back to it from another stop. Well, all the white people, which was probably all there were there on the bus, that raised a lot of eyebrows, I think. But the bus driver took pity on me and opened the door and let me out. And uh, then in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, I went with my roommate uh, to spend the vacation. And I rode in a car with uh, black kids my age to a party at the home of a well-off black family. It was dark when we were going there. But all my uh, black companions were just nervous as cats because they, what would they say if they were stopped and I was found in the same car, a white person with a bunch of black uh, 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 other people. So I don't have time out of detail much about this experience, uh, how it manifested itself in my future actions. But just in brief, um, as both a high school English teacher in the 1960s and a fourth-grade teacher from 1992 to 2005, I taught units of black history. Uh, In the 1980s, I took a trip to Mississippi with Project Help well, Self-Help and Awareness, and then I reported on that at Prairie later. And then in 2009 and 2010, I uh, mentored black women in the Marlborough Community Garden. And a few years ago, I volunteered, it's probably two years ago or three now, I volunteered for Prairie's Committee um, study committee in widening the circle of concern. And I say that, you no, know, at the present, time my contributions are mainly to donate money to organizations that are uh, working to provide education and aid to people who've been victims of discriminatory policies. Uh, All these things are pretty minor in the grand scheme of things, but I feel they're something at least. So that's my story.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Mary. Uh, Now Bob Park will tell us about his fascinating experiences Uh, during the civil rights movement. Bob? Okay.
2: UU connection began around 1963 as a graduate student when I joined the um, Channing Murray Club, which was the Unitarian Universalist um, group on campus. And it was also the year that Medgar Evers was assassinated near Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, He was the Mississippi's first field secretary for the NAACP, and his older brother Charles Evers took over that position after Medgar was killed. Uh, Medgar also was uh, had called on Edwin King, Reverend Edwin King, to come back from Massachusetts to Mississippi to help with the civil rights movement. Uh, Ed King was a white uh, Mississippian. Who had been involved in civil rights for a number of, of, of years. And uh, um, six, I believe it was a, six days after Medgar Evers was assassinated, Ed King was driven off the road and into a crash which uh, scarred his face and took years for him to recover. He, he at that time, had just taken over as chaplain and dean of students at Tougaloo College, which I'll talk about later. Uh, 1963 was also the year in September when the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham was bombed, killing the four little girls. Um, 1964 was the year I became president of the Channing Club, and that's the year when the three uh, civil rights workers disappeared in Mississippi at the beginning of Freedom Summer, when they had gone down to investigate the burning of a black church. It wasn't until uh, August of 1964 that their bodies were found um, after a tip had been received by the FBI. Um, That was also the year that uh, I met Orloff Miller, Uh, at a student religious liberals leadership training conference, and Orloff Miller the following year sent out a telegram to Unitarian groups, including uh, our Channing Murray Club, calling for people to come down and join the last day of the March on Montgomery, which Martin Luther King had organized and was leading. Um, That march had uh, first started after Jimmy Lee Jackson was killed in Mississippi in 1965, Uh, prior to what was called Bloody Sunday, when marchers tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge and were beaten back by police. Um, Eventually, the march, after the national attention was received, uh, the march did proceed to Montgomery, and uh, two of us went down as representatives of the uh, Channing Murray Club in response to the telegram. Uh, from uh, Orloff Miller, and Orloff Miller was one of the two UU ministers who was with James Reeb when the three of them were attacked, and the the attack which led to the death of of James Reeb. Um, We attended a rally the night before the final day. Uh, uh, When we went to uh, Alabama, we were hosted by the Unitarian Church. In Birmingham, Alabama, they gave us training in, in nonviolent protection uh, and uh, housed us in their homes, and took us on chartered buses to the rally that Martin Luther King spoke at uh, in the uh, Montgomery, <coughs> Montgomery area. Uh, and then uh, the following day, we were bus back again for the final three miles of the march on. Uh, Montgomery, led by Martin Luther King. Um, then that was in March of 1965. In uh, June, I returned to Mississippi as a volunteer for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party uh, to Jackson, Mississippi. And three days after arriving, I was arrested as with along with another, with about 470 some people, for uh, March as participating in a march on, a, on the Capitol in Jackson. Um, this was a very peaceful march, not in the streets, but along sidewalks, um, stopping to let traffic go when there was a stoplight. We were stopped by police before we reached the Capitol and told, uh, step out of the line or you'll be arrested. And uh, we were arrested and hauled off to state fairgrounds uh, and in, the Jackson, in Jackson. Um, and. Uh, your Evers' brothers, brother, Charles Evers, who was one of those arrested about the second day, and uh, I got to, to meet him briefly enough to shake his hand. Over a thousand people were arrested under the Jackson Police policy of instant arrest, and the crime was parading without a permit. Um, that uh, through the, went through the courts, and eventually that law as it was used in Mississippi was declared unconstitutional, and um, the uh, it became easier then to get a permit to parade in, in Jackson than it was in Madison at the time. Um, after getting out of the uh, ten days in the uh, fairgrounds, uh, Exhibition hall where we were, where the men were held. Um, I helped to organize uh, freedom schools um, and started one in Jackson. Uh, I was using as the basis for the freedom school uh, a book called Before the Mayflower, which uh, was first published in 1962. And I just got this from the library. This is the eighth edition, <laughs> much expanded from the first edition. This came, the eighth edition was in uh, 2007, Uh, and anyone who wants to uh, get a good review of a history of black history in America, this 800-page book is a a good start. shortly after, two weeks after returning from my summer in Mississippi, well, I had, while I was there, I uh, attended a uh, Unitarian Fellowship, UU Fellowship of Jackson, Mississippi, and they had an extension minister hired by the uh, UUA um, to help. uh, He was Donald Thompson, and two weeks after I got back to Wisconsin, I heard that he had been shot in the parking lot, Uh, of the apartment where I had enjoyed a a dinner at his place. Uh, He was wounded with uh, multiple injuries from a shotgun and uh, recovered and with threats on his family decided to to leave Mississippi and he returned to Boston where he worked in the Roxbury area. My uh, next contact with the civil rights movement was when I went to teach for a semester at Tougaloo College that I'd learned about from, apparently from Ed King. Uh, When I got to Tougaloo College, the president uh, of the college greeted me and and said with some pride how the uh, KKK had burned a cross on the lawn of the college. Some have described the Tougaloo College as the center of the civil, the unofficial center of the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Um, My own involvement there there was, I was completely involved in preparing and teaching classes, but my car was used by organizers who went out into the uh, community to organize. So uh, that's my, my part.
0: Thank you, Bob. So we'll take questions. I have a, a short, short piece on my experience during the 1960s. In 1966, as a member of the Evanston Unitarian Church, I served as the chair of the Social Action Committee. It was a time when many of the members of the congregation were actively engaged in demonstrations and protesting against unfair housing practices that were preventing Blacks from buying homes in a major part of the city. Some historical background helps understand why this was such a major issue. Blacks were in Evanston arriving in the 1850s. And by 1880, there were approximately 125 African-Americans in Evanston. And that number grew to 730 in 1900. At that time, many of the African-Americans in Evanston worked in domestic and personal services. In the years from 1900 to 1940, during the great migration of African-Americans from the rural south to the urban north, the the Black population of Evanston grew to over 6,000 in 1940. That was according to the census. And in an article by Andrew Weiss about segregation in Evanston published in the Journal of Social History, unlike many suburbs that sought to exclude African Americans altogether, leading members of Evanston's real estate establishment played a role in the growth of Evanston's large African-American community. Weiss states that Evanston was different in this respect from other uh, suburbs around Chicago. Evanston was already home to a well-established African-American community by the time of the Great Migration. In addition, he says African-American workers supplied labor that was in demand by white elites in Evanston, and they had personal ties with many of the white families that they worked with or worked for. There was one major caveat, according to Weiss. Evanston's white real estate brokers apparently developed a practice of informal racial zoning. In effect, they treated a section of West Evanston as open to African-Americans while excluding them from the rest of the town. If you see this on your screen, that red part and just below it is the large location where African-Americans reside. In 1964, Dr. Martin Luther King came to Evanston, and after a number of marches and demonstrations, a community relations commission uh, began to explore the possibility of open housing in Evanston. In September 1964, the commission found that more than one half of the white respondents preferred to live in a neighborhood that was 100% white. 72% of black respondents preferred to live in a neighborhood that was half black and half white. The commission also found that some real estate brokers were refusing to let properties for homeowners who wanted to sell on a non-discriminatory basis, and some declined to represent black homeowners. The commission concluded that housing was the most troublesome issue facing the city, and it drafted a proposed fair housing ordinance. A group of homeowners and a group of real estate uh, brokers quickly formed to oppose the open uh, housing ordinance. Homeowners argued the ordinance violated their First Amendment right to determine with whom they would deal. The group of brokers argued that fair housing would accelerate a shift of neighborhoods from all white to all black and cause property values to drop. In 1965 and into 1966, there were continued demonstrations in support of open housing, but continued opposition. And I remember marching in those demonstrations and packing the city hall when the uh, city uh, council was meeting. In 1966, the city council passed an open housing ordinance by a vote of 18 to eight but it was vetoed by the mayor. A year later in October, 1967, the council passed a stronger housing ordinance by a vote of 11 to seven. That ordinance prohibited brokers from discriminating or accepting discriminatory listings, but it did not cover property owners, financial institutions, banks, or real estate agencies. And then after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April, 4th, 1968, a large number, over 3,000 Evanston residents marched from Emerson Street and McCormick Boulevard through the downtown area and gathered at Raymond Park for a memorial service. And one minister was there who urged the immediate passage of an effective end and comprehensive housing law. On April 11th, 1966, Congress passed the Federal Fair Housing Act, prohibiting prohibiting discrimination in housing on the basis of race. And on April 29th, 1968, 200 people packed Evanston City Council chambers, and there were another 600 of us outside. I remember being outside. I didn't get inside that day. Council passed the fair housing ordinance by a vote of 15 to one. That one was stronger than one adopted in 1967, but it still had limitations. While adoption of fair housing laws was a major step forward, housing discrimination did not end in Evanston. For example, in 1989, the city fined eight real estate firms for violating the city's fair housing ordinance by racial steering. And just a few years ago in 2019, Evanston, Illinois became the first place in the United States to devise a plan to provide reparations to black residents to address racial discrimination that they had experienced in housing. On this day, when Dr. Martin Luther King would be celebrating his 95th birthday, we are still reaching for the realities of his dream. We'll be closing with these words by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children.